standing with me out of respect for the word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 23 to the end of the chapter, and the Lord willing today marks uh, the conclusion of our series of sermons which began back in chapter 8 in dealing uh, with this difficult pastoral issue of meat sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 23, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informs you and for conscience sake. I mean, not for your own conscience, but the other man's. Why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Let's ask for God's help to understand. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I'm calling this morning's message Christianity. In the agora. That literally means Christianity in the marketplace. That word agora is a Greek word for marketplace, which in uh, Greco-Roman culture was the center of commercial life. It was a place where people met to socialize. It was a place where the philosophers met to exchange ideas. It was essentially for them the center place of the outworking of their social lives. And here the Apostle Paul, in addressing the particular issue of meat sacrifice to idols, also gives us further instruction as he assumes a whole series of principles which undergird his instruction here in verses 23 to the end of 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, in, in addressing the specific problem of meat sacrifice to idols and how do we deal with that as Christians, he also gives us a, a very rich vein of instruction to help us understand the interaction of the believer uh, with the secular world. In other words, he helps us to understand this very complicated and important issue of the intersection of faith and life. And that's... Uh, What I want to address this morning as we deal with the specific issue here in Paul's final instructions, I want us also to know how this passage helps us understand how to live as believers in a world that is hostile to our faith. 
Well, as we see here, the Apostle, first of all, gives us uh, really uh, a set of instructions about uh, final sort of gray area issues having to deal with meat sacrifice to idols. And before we get to those specifics, it'll be helpful for us to just sort of briefly fill in the backdrop here so that we understand what Paul is saying and what is new in this section. And of course we'll remember that Paul began to talk about this whole uh, very important pastoral issue of meat sacrifice to idols all the way back in chapter 8. It seems to be a problem in the church. It seems that there were some strong believers who had no problem with going to the temple and buying meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It also seems that the rationale was that there was really nothing uh, wrong in doing it because after all the idols were nothing. Therefore, it didn't matter that they were there and eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And in a sense, Paul says, I agree with all that, but he has more to say. But he did say there initially in chapter 8 that one of the problems with that mentality and that way of living was that if a, a very weak Christian, one who had grown up steeped in idolatry, happened to see a strong believer partaking of meat in an idol's temple, uh, that they may... Uh, they may also indulge or partake of the meat, and by doing that, uh, think that they are somehow worshiping idols and severely harm and bruise their conscience. And so Paul said, hey, if that's what's going to happen, he said, uh, let all of us take a pledge never to eat meat again. Chapter 9, we have a whole series of admissions about uh, why under certain occasions it's proper for us to sacrifice uh, certain privileges and freedoms we have for the good of others. Early part of chapter 10, Paul hasn't left the issue of meat sacrifice to idols, but he does uh, illustrate from a very uh, uh, select set of passages from Israel's history how if we don't moderate our desires appropriately, uh, that they can get the best of us and they can uh, lead us finally to engage in, in such a gross sin that God will judge it. All of that Paul sort of draws into this whole discussion before he finally gets to the real punchline. And you remember last week we saw the first part of the punchline is this. If we just put the question to Paul and said... Can believers partake of meat sacrificed to idols? Paul's very clear and unambiguous first answer to that is no, if you do that within the temple. If you do that within the idol's temple, uh, you are not only uh, engaging in false worship, even if you didn't intend to do that, but you are also partaking in demons. And so he says, if you partake of meat sacrificed to idols within the temple, uh, you're wrong, you're sinning, because it is leading you under demonic influence, whether you have any intention at all of doing that, because he says, whatever has been sacrificed to idols is ultimately being sacrificed to demons. So, that's Paul's first answer, and uh, you realize that there are more situations in which a believer might actually partake of meat sacrifice to idols. So Paul brings up two more uh, particular everyday life circumstances in which it may happen. These are sort of gray areas, and he gives us further instruction about uh, how we are to interact with that particular problem. And the first uh, practical gray area that these believers may run into is the situation of meat sold in the marketplace. Now, it would be true to say that not all the meat that was sold in the marketplace 
was meat that had been offered to idols. That's, that's for sure. But it would also be fair to say that it would be very common to find meat that had been sacrificed to idols in the marketplace. If that's the issue that Paul wants to address, is, uh, there's, a, there's a high likelihood, there's a high percentage that a believer may actually end up buying meat that had been sacrificed, and what do we do about that? Now, before he gets into that question, uh, he prefaces uh, his remarks with a couple of very important qualifications. You see, in verse 23, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And then he says in verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. You see, what he's addressing here is a slogan. Uh, there seems to have been some in the Corinthian church, and probably the strong, who uh, repeat the slogan, all things are lawful for me. And what the apostle would say to that is, yes, there's some, uh, there's some real truth in that. As long as God didn't forbid it, it's okay. It is lawful. And some of these Corinthians had probably taken it to uh, great extremes. And Paul says, here's what I want you to think of first of all. When you think about this matter of Christian liberty, when you think about uh, this principle of all things are lawful to me, he says, here's what I want you to do. What I want you to do is so moderate your thinking, I want you to so moderate your conduct that you think of these principles in conjunction with the use of your freedom. He says, yes, all things may be lawful, but not everything is good for me. That's, That's very important. Not everything that is lawful for me is good for me. Second of all, he says, as you think about this principle of Christian freedom as it relates to your own conduct and and the way you interact within the Christian community, second of all, remember this, not everything edifies. Not everything that you can do turns out to be for the edification that is the spiritual nourishment and benefit of other believers. And he says, you better start thinking about that because Christianity is lived out within community. Christianity is not all about rugged individualism. Uh, Christianity is not all about me working out my salvation and my Christian life in isolation from other people. He says Christianity is communal. And therefore the decisions that we make and the things that we do often have a very profound impact upon other people who are within the Christian community. So he says, instead of you sort of abstracting this principle of all things are lawful for me, and simply thinking of yourself, enjoying all of your Christian liberty, he says, do this. Moderate your decisions and your actions according to this principle. Don't seek your own good, but that of your neighbor." See, that's the principle that Paul uh, wants to implant in our thinking as we approach this issue. Our conduct is to be uh, moderated in such a way that is actually beneficial and good, not just for ourselves, but those who are part of our Christian community. Now, very important, because he gets into the specifics and the gray areas about the marketplace and he says first of all eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without asking questions for conscience sake 
So he says, okay, finally we're getting to one of the gray areas, and you finally did approach uh, the meat counter at the local uh, supermarket, and, and he says, there's all of this meat set out before you, and here is what Paul wants to do to relieve the conscience of these Corinthians all. And he says, buy and eat anything you want. Buy and eat anything you want. But he says, do it in such a way that you don't ask questions about it. That word questions there means to thoroughly investigate something. In other words, uh, he says, I don't want you walking up to the butcher or uh, the person who's responsible for, for us uh, putting all the meat out there uh, so people can purchase. He said, I don't want you to run around asking a bunch of questions about where this meat came from. He says, all I want you to do is to go with your money in hand and find the meat that you want to buy and purchase it and take it home and barbecue it up and eat it and enjoy it. Don't ask any questions, he says, and here's why, for the protection of your conscience. Conscience, it's, it's that very mysterious uh, moral and, and psychological mechanism uh, which warns us, right? It's, it's the thing inside of us that, that causes uh, bells to go off and, and lights to start shining and, and warn us that we're getting too close or we're actually in the middle of doing what's contrary to God's law. Everybody has it. It's something that uh, we can push down for sure. It's something that we can, uh, we can uh, neglect. That's a possibility and it does happen. The Word of God even talks about people whose conscience even becomes seared. And it becomes seared because they continually and willfully persist in sin against what they know to be true. And they do that to such a point that it's if their conscience has a giant callus over it and is insensitive to moral issues anymore. Now, while I'm here, I I might as well do some meddling. Uh, We have to be extremely careful as Christians because it is absolutely possible for a Christian to sear their conscience by engaging in sin, engaging in things that they know are wrong, and repeatedly doing it willfully because they want to indulge their own desires. And the problem is, is that if you continue to repeat that and you continue to be unrepentant in it, the issue is this, that your heart becomes insensitive to immorality. Not just that particular immorality, but to immorality in general. You see, that's why conscience comes up here. It is a terribly dangerous thing for a believer to be insensitive to sin. Yes, we can be hypersensitive to sin to the point that every little thing we're investigating and questioning and wondering, we're always in doubt. That's not what is in view here. The in view here is what is clearly against God's law. And if I continue to go against that and unrepentant, it begins to signal great spiritual disaster lies in the future for me. That's why Paul says, I, I, I want you to not ask questions for conscience sake. Because it, it can happen that it's like that weak believer. That they, they go back to the eating of meat sacrificed to idols and they just can't stop thinking about old sin. 
And pretty soon they start thinking about old sin and they, they begin to remember how it might have been enjoyable. And they may begin to remember the circumstances in which they were and the kinds of friends they hung out with and the kinds of places they were at. And pretty soon, uh, their conscience is not only disturbed as they engage in activities they know they shouldn't be, but then it becomes insensitive. What Paul does here is very fascinating. He says, I'm telling you, plain as day, it's okay to go buy this meat in the marketplace. And I'm also telling you it's okay to buy it and to eat it and to not ask a single question about it. I want to protect your conscience, Paul says. How can he say that? Well, because of what he says in verse 26. He basically just cuts and pastes from Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord... And all it contains. Here's his reason why. Here's the rationale. He says, you can go ahead and buy that meat and eat that meat because it doesn't matter the intentions that uh, were in the hearts and minds of the people who took that meat and they offered it in the temple. Or rather, the, the temple. He says, now it's not there anymore. Now it's been uh, transported down to the marketplace. He says, what you need to realize now is that the Lord owns it. It's His. It may have been used for wrong purposes, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. That meat belongs to God, and that is God's means of providing for your daily bread. So he says, you go ahead and partake. We'll have a principle there to apply in a moment. But that's the first answer to this gray area issue. Somebody was going to ask the question, so Paul goes ahead and he takes care of it. He says, yes, buy it. Buy it, eat it, and don't ask another question about it. Secondly, verse 27, we have a different situation here. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, you know, if if an unbeliever invites you over for a barbecue, he says, go ahead and go. The situation is, a friend, an unbeliever, says, why don't you come over? We're throwing a big party tonight. We'd like to have you here. We're going to have a bunch of my friends here. Uh, We'd like to have you in for dinner. The Apostle Paul says, fine. We'll use the same principle that we used about the marketplace. Go ahead and eat. And then he says, don't ask any questions. Eat anything that is set before you without asking any questions for conscience sake. But as soon as he says that in verse 28, it complicates things just a little bit. He says, But if anyone says to you, This has been offered to idols, don't eat it. Now why? Very important that we understand the reason why. Because the reason why is not the same reason that's given back in verse 20. Remember verse 20 says, The things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Well, if you go ahead and eat that, and you know it's been sacrificed to demons, you will become partakers with demons. He does not say that. He says, Here's the reason why I don't want you to go ahead and partake. He says, Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. For conscience sake. And then notice what he says in verse 29, just so that we're clear. He says, I don't mean for your conscience, but the other man's. What Paul is saying here is he's plugging back in uh, these principles of how to uh, use our freedom, our liberty, in such a way that 
ends up being a blessing to other believers. Remember, we should be thinking of verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. We should be thinking of 23b. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. The situation is that there's probably a believer. We don't know that, but it probably is. It makes no sense that Paul would be say, uh, don't eat it for the conscience of an unbeliever. So it's probably the case that there's a, there's a believer who's also here at the barbecue, and that believer has found out the meat has been sacrificed to demons in a temple, and uh, the host just uh, swung by the, the temple and, and picked it up and, and brought it home for the party. Uh, that person is probably weak in faith. Uh, that, problem is, that person is probably prone then, as they partake of that meat, or if they did, to... Uh, to fall back into thinking about uh, false worship or to make them feel like they had done it even though they didn't want to. And so Paul said, for the sake of that person, don't eat. Now, you can just tuck that away in your thinking because I want to address something else and if this confuses you, that's okay. You can let your mind rest for a second. But I have to deal with it because verse uh, 29b and 30 seem a little odd to us. And so that's what I want to deal with. Paul has just addressed the situation of, of a believer at a barbecue, and they find out the meat has been sacrificed to an idol from a bystander. The bystander is probably a believer. The bystander is probably a weak believer. The, by, the bystander probably has a problem with remembering a participation in old false worship. And Paul said, for the sake of that person, don't partake. But then he says in the end of verse 29 on the 30, he says, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? And then in verse 30 he says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I being slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? What does he mean by all that? Well, what I think what he's saying is, is he's connecting uh, the latter part of 29 and on to 30 back to verse 27 where he says, you're allowed to eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. And what I think he is saying here in 29b and on to 30 is this. The way you feel about it is the issue. If you don't have a conscience about it and you have given thanks to God for it and you recognize the provision as God's providing you with daily bread and you've prayed over it, you've consecrated it, you've thanked the Lord for it, there's nothing wrong with it. Your conscience doesn't have to be affected by your brother's or your neighbor's conscience. Now you may restrain your actions for the, for the sake of their conscience. But you don't have to have the same level of sensitivity that they do. That's a principle we'll have to bring back in in a minute as we talk about how faith intersects with a Christian life. I I hope I didn't confuse anybody, but if you're curious how 29 and 30 fit in the overall part of Paul's argument, that's what it is. He says, your conscience doesn't have to be uh, does not have to be at the same level of sensitivity somebody else's is. There's nothing wrong with you if your conscience isn't at their level of being concerned and anxious and worried. You might restrain your actions for their conscience sake, just to be a good brother, a good neighbor to them, be loving to them, to build them up, but you don't have to have their same conscience. 
Now, as we've expounded the passage at this point, it's good for us now to step back and say, how does this apply to something that's beyond meat sacrifice to idols? After all, that's probably not a burning question for most of us here this morning. But we have to recognize that within this answer, there are some principles which are certainly relevant to us as believers and how we interact in a fallen world. And the very first principle is this, that when you go to the store, to the mall, to the flea market, wherever, and you are exchanging goods and services with cash, what Paul would say to you is you don't have to worry, you don't have to ask questions. You are free to engage in economic exchange. You say, well, what in the world are you getting at, Pastor Sautel? Well, I'm getting at this. Just listen. Uh, I had been thinking about this because I remember years and years ago hearing about boycotts that Christians uh, were organizing against Procter & Gamble because of uh, the corporate logo of the company uh, supposedly being uh, a tribute to the demonic and to the occult. I got to thinking, there's some probably application issues that are related here to 1 Corinthians 10. And so I did some research uh, over the week, and what I came up with was some interesting stuff on a website called JesusIsSavior.com, and the article is called Devil Companies, Devil Products, and Devil Logos. By reading some of these comments, you begin to understand what I'm talking about. On the website, we are told to consider Apple's choice for its corporate symbol. The company's logo is an apple that has had a bite taken out of it. And to many occult insiders, this signifies that the eating of the forbidden fruit by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was a good thing. Occultists and New Agers teach that taking a bite out of the apple will give the first humans knowledge, putting them on a path of self-divinity and godhood. So we're not supposed to buy products from Apple. Here's another thing I found on the website. Procter & Gamble's corporate logo of the old man staring at 13 stars. Well, we're given the true meaning of that by this website. Some people suspect that the stars represent the occultic number 13, and the belief is that they are arranged and roughly appear as a 6, the number of the beast of Revelation 13. And there's two horns coming out of the old man's head. We're also uh, informed and warned about Intel's Pentium processing chip. It suspiciously resembles the ancient occult symbol of eternity, a serpent biting its own tail. We're warned about Sodom, uh, or rather Saturn Automobile's logo, where we are told it looks suspiciously like crossed horns. And we are also warned about Disney's corporate logo that has supposedly three sixes embedded within it to represent the number of the beast. Now, the reason for this article is to warn all of us about the fact that there are all these corporate companies out there in their logos and in perhaps in the owners and the people who run the company. They're all pushing a, a demonic ideology, ideology and we are to do everything we can to make every effort not to buy the products of those companies so that we don't come under the spell of the demonic now, this is very common. We can, we can kind of uh, laugh at it for a moment, but that's exactly the issue that stands behind this passage here. What if those companies were into that? You see? Well, Paul says, you know what you should do? Don't ask questions. That's what he says. He says, don't ask questions. 
eat anything that is sold in the marketplace? Don't ask questions. Now, this is a revolutionary principle if you stop and think about it. This is not what the Jews would have done. The Jews had very specific regulations about what they were to buy in the marketplace and the kinds of procedures they had to go through before they could buy something in the marketplace, particularly the meat that was sold there. And one of the things that they had to determine was whether the animal had been slaughtered by a Jewish butcher. They were not permitted to buy any meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. The animal could not have been diseased anyway, because if it were, they were not permitted to buy it and to eat it. And by the way, Paul's principles here are somewhat surprising, especially in verse, uh, view of verse 20 when he said that that meat, if it's sacrificed in the temple amounts to an offering to idols, which is at the same time an offering to demons, and if you partake of it, you become partakers in a demon. Now, with all of that in the backdrop, what we might say is it would have been a lot safer and a lot cleaner for the Apostle Paul to say, just stay away from the whole thing. Do what the Jews did in Rome. By the way, there was, a, there was a big debate brewing in the Roman church about the same time as was going on in Corinth. And you had the Jewish Christians who were demanding that the Gentiles eat only vegetables. They were demanding the Gentile Christians eat only vegetables and they abstained from all of the wine that was sold in the marketplace because they believed that all that had been contaminated through being offered to idols. And so there's an enormous uh, debate that Paul has to address in the context of Romans chapter 14 and on to 15, where the Jews were demanding and insisting that Gentile believers eat vegetables and drink only water. Paul says the same thing there as he does here. He says, don't ask questions. You know, it may be that Procter & Gamble is uh, somehow has a a New Age philosophy. It could be that Apple does too. I don't know. I sincerely doubt that they do, but maybe they do. What the Apostle Paul would say is don't ask questions. You're free to buy uh, an Apple computer. You're free to buy toothpaste made by Procter & Gamble. And you're free to go to Disneyland Paul says don't ask questions why? because the answer is the same as in verse 26 the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains see creation is basically good because it's been made by the hand of the Lord it's preserved by the hand and the mouth and the breath of the Lord it's basically good Paul says don't ask That's how you navigate the marketplace as a believer. You do it in faith. You don't break God's laws. But when it's about other things, he says, you don't ask questions. The second thing here we might glean from this principle of verse 25 and 26 for the intersection of faith and life, and I'll carry it also into uh, to, to, to verse 27, when an unbeliever invites you into their home. I believe that the second principle the Apostle Paul spells out here is that we're to navigate, or rather we're to engage the marketplace. And when I use marketplace, now I'm using it in its broadest sense, not just the, the economic exchange, but the social exchange. 
And what Paul says here in these principles that he outlines is that you're free to engage the marketplace. Now when you think about that, again, it, it's, it's kind of surprising. It's kind of surprising because if we were given the Corinthians advice here, we wouldn't give it this way. If the modern church was giving Corinthians advice on how to interact with their pagan, idolatrous culture, we wouldn't give this advice. What we would say is what you ought to do is to develop a Christian Yellow Pages. And you should only shop in stores that have a fish symbol or logo in the window. Or that have John 3.16 prominently displayed. As for interacting with unbelieving friends, everybody already knows that you don't do that if you're a Christian. You don't even have unbelieving friends. There's no reason to have unbelieving friends. All you do is you hang out with church people at church five nights a week. You see, that would have been our answer. It would have been very simple. There wouldn't even been an issue here. But the Apostle Paul does not construct his advice and his admonition that way. He says to the believers, eat anything that's sold in the marketplace. And he says in verse 27, if an unbelieving friend invites you over for a barbecue, by all means go. Now the big question is going to be for us, why? And that brings us into the third principle that emerges from the passage. Because how you interact with the marketplace has profound spiritual implications. That's the rest of our passage where we're going to settle in on for the rest of our message this morning. The way you interact with the marketplace has profound spiritual implications. You see the very first one in verse 31. He says, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He says to the Corinthians, and he says to the church, let me give you the big ultimate thing that your whole life is to be consumed with. Living for the glory of God in everything. Whether you eat, or whether you drink, or whatever you do. All human activity is to be carried on for the express purpose of praising God. Now, all of us have memorized this Bible verse since the time we were in Sunday school, so we need to stop and ask a question. What is the context? What does it really mean when the Apostle says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do is to be done to the glory of God? And we have to understand that within view of the context, and the context has multiple layers to it, right? In the context, he's talking about going out engaging in a free market exchange. That is, going shopping. In the context, he's talking about uh, cooking meals and eating them. In the context, he's talking about hanging out with unbelieving friends. So it draws in uh, relationships. I mean, there are a whole host of things that come into Uh, The context here, as we plug all of those things into this verse, asking the question, what does it mean to live for God's glory? And the Apostle Paul says, uh, as far as we can see in our life, whatever it is that we are engaged in is to be done to the glory of God. Whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether you're relating, how you're treating fellow believers, whether you're shopping, whatever you do, 
Paul says all of life falls under this category. Everything that you do has spiritual implications. That's amazing. You see, Paul does not view the Christian life uh, as um, just sort of huddling up in a commune somewhere with other Christians. It's not about saying no to everything that's around you. Paul has a very robust view of the Christian life and the interaction of the Christian with the world. As long as it's not sinful, the Apostle Paul says, you are free to engage in it under certain qualifications. And when you do that, the guiding principle is this. Glorifying God in everything. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do. It's amazing, a principle that the Apostle Paul lays down here. But he calls believers to engage life comprehensively and to live comprehensively in everything for the glory of God. Important for us to pause and to appreciate, I suppose, this morning, just how much of our life is to be lived for the glory of God. Recreation, dining, marriage, family... Work, friendships, shopping, cooking, eating. God calls you to be consciously aware of the fact that your whole life is lived with this principle in view. Not just on Sundays. Not just in Bible times and prayer times. But in everything. God calls you to live for His glory. The other spiritual implication that Paul draws out here in this passage uh, it bears upon the interaction of the believer with the fallen world. The second aim is that our life is to have an evangelistic purpose. The first aim of our interaction with uh, the world around us is that we do everything in such a way that we glorify God in all life's complexities and relationships and comprehensiveness. And the second thing is, Paul says, we are to live with an evangelistic purpose. Look at what he says in verse 32 and verse 33. He says, Give no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church. And then we get the reason in verse 33. Just as I also please all men in all things... Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, and here's your reason, so that they may be saved. So that they may be saved. There's your evangelistic purpose in everything. The Apostle Paul says, I seek to please men. And the word please men really means to show honor. He says to treat everybody with dignity and respect and to interact with them in such a way that I may save them. That's not the first time we see Paul saying that kind of a thing. In fact, Paul will talk about living in such a way as to save people so often we might say this morning that we're sort of left off the hook. Right? After all, no one can argue with this. Paul clearly was unique. 
He had a unique calling and that He was directly called by the risen Christ. He had a unique calling in the sense that He was called to be the Apostle to the Gentiles who Christ said is to be sent to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness, that they may uh, turn from the dominion of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins, that they may partake of the inheritance of all those who have been sanctified. Paul clearly has a unique calling. He was a unique man with unique zeal. And it seems to be that Paul could find an evangelistic opening in every occasion of life because of his unique calling. But, we can't miss the concluding admonition of verse 1, chapter 11. Be imitators of me. See, Paul is telling us this is... This is what I want you to do. I don't want you to be so terrified of the ungodly, unbelieving world that all you do is spend all of your time nurturing and building up and containing your experience within the church. So that you never interact with the world out there. So you never have conversations with unbelieving people. So that you never have relationships with people who aren't Christians. What he says, what I want you to do is have a philosophy of how to engage and interact with the world. You need to understand, number one, that in everything that you do, you're to aim at the glory of God. So that's always going to be a controlling principle in all the decisions that you make. But second of all, he says, I want you to understand this. That you are to engage the world around you because you have a profound and important calling. And that profound and important calling is that you show respect to others. You live out the faith in such a way that you may be used by God to save others. And you can't do that if we're always huddled up together. We have a very very profound principle here that Paul sets forth in this passage. We're called to a policy of engagement with the world. We are to be imitators of Paul. Here are some basic, concluding, guiding principles of how we are to do this. And all of them are taken from this passage here. We are to imitate Paul with the aim of saving others and winning them to Jesus Christ by interacting in the marketplace by not asking questions for conscience sake trusting that the Lord is providing for our needs through even the products and services of unbelievers we are to do it in such a way that we are willing and able to accept invitations to uh, enjoy uh, fellowship with unbelievers We're to do it all in such a way that we're consciously aware of and thinking about the calling that we have as believers is that we're to glorify God in everything. We're to do it in such a way that we are to be aware of the fact that there may be around us believers and Christians who have sensitive consciences sometimes and sometimes engaged in certain activities. We'll have to step back if a believer says, you know what, I'm I'm, I'm concerned. My conscience is bothering me over there. Maybe we step back from what we're doing for the moment, at least when they're there so that we're not dragging them down into sin because they're going against their conscience and we engage and interact in the world in such a way that we retreat all men with honor and respect 
and dignity because they're made in the image of God. Now those are the principles that Paul gives us here as we think about the Christian and their interaction in the marketplace. We're to do it in such a way that we're loving and glorifying God, loving our neighbor, and always aiming at the salvation of the lost. Let's pray.